All right, RD, introduce the episode. Go. <laughs> we are talking about protein today. Woohoo! You did it. Protein doesn't get enough <laughs> uh, love, I think. It just gets it lost in the sauce with uh, everyone getting all pissy about carbs talking about fats it just gets sort of lost in the shuffle i think it does it does and by the way i just have to commend you for starting off the episode when i totally just threw that at you we sometimes joke that i'm always the intro outro person and that amy would get awkward but i think that you actually did that on your feet pretty well i just i want to give you a round of applause that one wasn't too bad i i think again like the full intro full outro it just i just i don't know i just it weirds me out a little bit and I anticipate usually you hand it off to me, so I have to say something, you know, to get the okay. ball rolling. Well, well, just wanted to commend you in the first, you know, moments of the podcast here. But yeah, you know, I think you started off well. Um, this is a topic that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, at least to be clear, in our world. If you were in like the bodybuilding world or mm-hmm. the sports athletic kind of world, absolutely protein is a huge focal point. And mm-hmm. I would say that in like more health conscious vegetarian and vegan circles, they probably talk about protein and being conscious of that too. But specifically people who are trying to heal their gut and they've been diagnosed with IBS or SIBO, these folks tend to not focus a whole lot on protein. We're really more interested typically in you know, should I do keto? Should I not do keto? Should I do, you know, low FODMAP? Is fiber bad for me? Are carbs bad for me? And we spend so much time talking about those other macros that protein just kind of gets put on the back burner. But this is a pretty common issue, right? Like we've, we've kind of commiserated over this clinically. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think that you're talking about this with clients pretty frequently that they need to increase their protein? Yeah, I would say probably 50% of my clients, if I had to put a number um, on it, need to increase protein a little bit. I would say it's probably more common in women, although I have seen men that need to raise it too. Um, But yeah, I I think it's a a pretty common problem for sure. I think also, um, again, this is probably obvious, but almost always vegans and vegetarians I'm needing to talk about this with. Um, you know, honestly, to a point where I had a one-on-one session with a FODMAP Freedom student just like a week or two ago, and mm. he doesn't have chronometer available in his country, but we were mm. able to get like a really rough idea of how much protein he's eating as a vegetarian, and it's just nowhere near enough. Mm. And yeah, I think that this is one of those things that can keep you feeling stuck and like mm. spinning your wheels, like, oh, man, I'm doing everything right. Why am I not healing? And he was a good example of this. He, you know, by the end of the program, he was one of the few people who came to me and said, I'm really not feeling any better. Like, I'm doing all the things in the program. Mm. But then we talked about his nutrition. And there were other things to focus on. But one of the really glaring things was that he's he was eating like 40 grams of protein a day. Right. There's no way that's adequate. So that became a big focal point of our one-on-one session together. But, um, yeah, you know, I think we've briefly mentioned this in at least one guest episode that I could think of, but your tissues are made out of protein, and you need building blocks in order to heal tissues. So there's like a general requirement of protein for any living organism. And then there's probably an increased protein need for anybody who's especially active, growing a baby, aka pregnant, right. or healing something Mm. in their body. So just by the fact that you're listening to this episode and you have something you're trying to heal, you probably have a higher protein requirement than you even realize. Yeah, I I think pregnancy is a big one, like you say. In a lot of the research, they talk about, you know, preventing sarcopenia, which is in older populations, like muscle wasting. Um, So a lot of there's a lot of arguments to raise some of the recommendations in older populations even more so because the outcomes are better with higher protein. Um, same same thing with some of the recommendations for younger. So people that are growing a lot uh, probably need more protein. Um, and some of the researchers, some researchers when I was going through prepping for this ep- episode really argue for children's recommendations to be raised pregnancy and lactating to be raised and um, the uh, 
um, older individuals, like over 65, for their um, levels to be raised. But I would argue that the whole thing needs to be raised, which we'll get into a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of what protein is, I mean, protein basically catalyzes every reaction in the body. Like, it's just so critical. Um, and Maybe said a slightly different way. Sorry to interrupt you, but something a little less nerdy and more yeah. like um, digestible, pun intended, yeah. for people at home. Every single enzyme in your body is a protein. Right. So pancreatic enzymes, digestive mm-hmm. enzymes, enzymes that make things in your cells, those are all proteins. And you have a lot of proteins as like receptors and parts of your cell. It's like itself, the cellular structure and every single hormone and every single neurotransmitter Mm -hmm. in your body is also a protein. So your brain's ability to communicate with other body parts or neurons ability to communicate with other neurons, that's Mm -hmm. protein. Yeah. Hormones like insulin, thyroid, estrogen, testosterone, doesn't matter. They're all protein. So protein is not only the building blocks and like the physical structure of your body in a lot of ways, but also it's your body's way of communicating with itself and keeping the machine running smoothly. Yeah. And I I think again, like just to emphasize too what that means or what can happen if you're low protein wise, one of the papers I was looking at actually had like a list of symptoms of protein deficiency. Now, again, I think outright deficiency by standards, by the typical recommended dose that are recommended amount of protein is going to be a lower threshold than what I would recommend. So there is sort of a outright deficiency and maybe suboptimal and then optimal thinking of it in that way. Um, But there was a list. And again, it just shows you how important it is. It's like decreased skeletal muscle essentially is would be obvious um, kind of lower albumin, endocrine imbalance, so like that affects hormones, reduced insulin levels, reduced growth hormone, reduced thyroid hormones, impaired antioxidant reactions, so like more inflammation, more oxidative stress, more aging, um, growth stunning, so impaired like growth that could be cognitively or you know physically. Um, what else is it saying? Um, impairments of absorption, transport, and storage of nutrients. So like vitamins, minerals, uh, glucose, anemia. So like reduced transport of oxygen through the body, um, skeletal muscle wasting, impaired immune reactions, frequent infections, higher rates of mortality because of infections, um, cardiac failure, high blood pressure. Um, hold on. Sorry. It's stuck. Uh, let's see. Uh, is that it? No, no, there's more. There's more. But wait. Um, t- t- like swelling, tissue swelling, like fluid retention, reduced synthesis of neurotransmitters, which you talked about. So like depression, anxiety, irritability, um, loss of libido, reduced fertility, loss of calcium from bones, dental abnormalities, hair breakage and loss, um, pale skin, kind of like an unhealthy skin. Um, so yeah, it's like the list is large because it affects every system Everything. of the body. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned hair specifically because I did a YouTube video about hair loss and we did an episode about hair loss not that long ago. And um, I've, you know how like social media algorithms yeah you click on something once and then it shows you a bunch of ads for that thing so i had this blip on the radar where i was watching like videos and reels about hair care and like hair oiling and that sort of stuff and i did this mini course with somebody and then i i was watching enough reels but everybody in like the hair growth hair health Mm. world talks about protein and the kind of blanket statement that they give for most women who are trying to grow thicker, fuller hair is a hundred grams of protein per day minimum, Mm. which is pretty, pretty high compared to what I see clinically. I think a lot of people undershoot to a point. I will say I'm six feet tall and uh, like 185, 190 pounds. 
And I average, according to Chronometer, over the last year or so of data on Chronometer that I've done on myself, I average about 86 grams of protein. Mm. So I'm a non-petite woman, and I'm still only eating that much. So I'm imagining a woman, especially of like more normal stature, Mm. trying to pump 100 grams of protein. Yeah. That's probably pretty challenging. Yeah, I don't I think it takes some work if someone's shooting for a higher protein goal like 100 grams. Um and I think again it's more prominent that I don't know, this sounds like a weird thing, but I do think that men tend to just eat more meat. I don't know if there's some cultural element <laughs> that's like guys eat meat, girls don't eat meat, you know. I don't know. I think there could be some like cultural element to that. I I don't know. Maybe it's because they want to be muscly and it's promoted more. Uh, But yeah, I I think um, usually, like I said, I might have mentioned it earlier. I I do think that it's slightly more common in women to have lower protein um, than in men. I I definitely think it is. And again, I think vegetarians and vegans – it's a very right. common issue there as well. We'll we'll talk a little bit about that later on, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, um, and and just to, to talk about like recommended levels. I was just so, going to ask. So how do we figure out our protein need? Oh, registered dietitian of mine. That was going to yeah. be my question. So it's really interesting. So typically how they determine, um, how they determine protein needs as a population as they did studies on nitrogen balance nitrogen balance of the body. So like how much nitrogen are you taking in and how much nitrogen are you burning? And so they try to figure out like, ooh, like what's the what's the level of protein where you're like equal, where you're taking in because nitrogen is uh it's basically an indicator of protein intake. And so if you think of like calories in, calories out, it'd be kind of like that for protein. So if you have nitrogen coming in and nitrogen coming out, you'd want to like have a balanced level or that's the that's the mentality around coming up with the protein um, status um, and protein need recommendations as they use nitrogen balance studies. So they like looked at every looked at where that balance was and what they came out to averaging a bunch of studies out was 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um which again, I think that that's low. Um, and I don't necessarily see that being um, the ideal level clinically. Um, and again, there's also a lot of, there's some newer um, papers that I was reading that really argue that you can't just simply use nitrogen levels. Like you have to look at outcomes too. So a lot of these are on, you know, um, looking at this one test, but it's not really looking at outcomes. Now, there are some some studies looking more so at outcomes, mainly for older individuals. Like, it's hard with some of these studies because there's not really a study looking at optimal protein intake. It's like, okay, we need to prevent sarcopenia. It's like preventative or yeah. there's some issue like liver disease and we need to know wh- what protein level for liver disease. That's there's a the difference hard- between preventing disease and obtaining or maintaining health. Right. Like the two and of those the, things are not exactly synonymous. Right. So there's not really, I mean, I, I didn't find anything. There could be more than I realized, but there's not really tons of evidence with just general health. Even some of the ones that are a little bit more trying to find optimal levels tend to be more performance driven, like with sports or uh, muscle building and things like that, which again, is really interesting and could be imp- like a factor, but just general health, I-, I don't think there's tons of great, you know, research around that, if that makes well, sense. Well, and I guess it begs the question, like, what would the indicator be? If we're saying that I know. It's, rather it's, it's than hard. just nitrogen and nitrogen out, if we need to measure something or have an outcome Mm. In a general population that's not trying to bulk up, they're not trying to get fit necessarily, they just want to be like the average Joe or Jane America. That might be the challenge is that we don't really have a great marker for that. Like, I don't know if serum protein or albumin could be sort of a very loose indicator, but. Well, and I think, again, like that's, that's the thing that you see more clinically is just how are people feeling? Um, And there's some like 
subjectivity to some of those, uh, you know, mindset and things could shape how you're feeling and things like that and distort things. But I do think um, that just clinically, I see people needing feeling best on well over the 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, To that point, I I grabbed my phone. I wasn't trying to be rude when I was looking at my phone, but I was quickly calculating. So for me, I think I have about 85 kilos, if I remember correctly. So if I do that calculation for me, 0.8 times 85, supposedly I only need 68 grams of protein, which again, like considering my stature and my height, like that's that's surprising to me. I definitely think that that would be insufficient. Um, Yeah. And I think a good way to think about it too is like, there's not really much reserves then. So even if you're thinking about it from a nitrogen balance standpoint, like it might be beneficial to have a little bit over right at that limit of like, we need just enough to make everything function optimally and nothing beyond that. Um, So that's true of most nutrients. Like, and do I, you want to get exactly the the right amount of B12 or would you like to have a little bit extra? Right. And I think that there's also some evidence to support that like people might be meeting their overall protein needs, but also not be getting the individual amino acids that they need. So like, like you were, like we've talked about before, you know, this one, someone could be getting tons of one amino acid because they're eating one primary protein source and not enough of another. Yeah. So having a higher protein, total protein, could make up for gaps in some of those amino acid profiles, which I think is really important um, because, again, some of these amino acids we can't make. So if we're just barely scraping by to, like, the recommended protein levels, but then, like, you don't have a source of glycine-rich food in your diet, you could still be low in glycine, and it could still impact your function in a lot of ways. Yeah. Whereas like if even if your levels were just a little bit above, your glycine might be a little higher. Maybe there is like some room for eating more glycine rich foods in, but you probably wouldn't have as extreme of a deficiency. Um, but yeah, well, so I think that, go ahead. <laughs> I feel like this is the 15th time I've interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, uh, I was going to say though, there's, I think another reason to overshoot that bare, bare minimum that we described, the 0.8 times whatever, mm-hmm. um, is you need to make room for healing. So, yeah. for example, glutamine, famously in this world, it, if I say glutamine, you <laughs> say? Leaky gut healer. There <laughs> you go. And, and it's yeah. true. Glutamine is the primary fuel source for the, it, the small intestine cells. Right. Um, fun fact, the immune system also uses a boatload of glutamine. Mm. So it's pretty important for immune function. But imagine, you know, if you're somebody who's scraping by and just barely getting that bare minimum of protein. So let's say for me, my stature and my size, let's say I was hitting the mark 68 grams of protein every single day. Mm. Well, what happens when I get sick? and my immune system needs a little extra? Or what happens if I get exposed to gluten and as a celiac, my intestines freak the F out right. and I need some extra to heal my intestines? It And there's probably little insults happening to our body almost every day just because of the world we live in and like toxins and stress and, and you know, sometimes you eat the French fries when you go to a restaurant or right. whatever. So I think having a bit of a buffer or an insurance policy is really reasonable. Now, I seem to remember this. So 0.8 times your weight in kilograms is mm-hmm. like kind of the, the bare bones minimum theoretically. But we're saying that's way too low. I remember from my exercise science days, they used to say like, if you're really physically active or you're trying, to, if you're lifting weights, you want to go up to 1.2 grams mm-hmm. per kilogram of body weight. So that would put me right about at 100, I think. Right. Do you think right. that that's a more reasonable estimate for most people who are actively trying to heal something? Yeah, I mean, I think the 100 gram mark is going to be really solid for uh, women. Again, there's there's going to be discrepancies because like you could have the teeniest, tiniest woman that probably that's doesn't need 100 say. grams. My best friend is, uh, is 95 pounds right. and five feet tall. So right. are we going to say that she needs 100 grams right. of protein? Because I she... think I think honestly, my favorite 
marker would probably be more looking at percentage of total calories. I find that that's maybe the easiest way to do it. So like, this is also hilarious that this is a recommendation. The The Institute of Medicine recommends 10 to 35% of protein. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's a huge range. Um, and 10 is low. Right. 10 is low. I would say tw- around 20% is usually pretty sufficient. Um, now, there could be nuance there. Uh, but I would say for most people around that 20%. So like for me, I think I did the calculations just, I'm, my needs are around 2,200 a day. Um, I'm fairly active calories a day. So that would put me at 110 grams per day of protein. Um, and similarly, it depends if I work out or not, but I'm not super active on a day to day. I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, but on a normal kind of baseline day for me, I think my my need is right about 2,000 calories per day. So that would probably put me closer to 100, I think, yeah. give or take, or maybe plus yeah. or minus a little bit. Yeah, I think it would be right at 100 at the 2,000, right? Because yeah. math. Because uh, <laughs> math. Because math. Something like that, um, yeah. But yeah, I usually think like, and, and again, you could go up a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and, and again, it's interesting, you know, in the dietetic space, because it's like, oh, well, you people that have wounds or that are, are burned are, are people that have burns, like they need so much more calories, 1.4, right. 1. Yeah. 1.4 grams of protein per kilograms up to that level they might need. But it's kind of like, I don't know, should we be, should people just generally be getting a little bit more in, like you said, than the baseline? Like if something happens and you need to heal, wouldn't it be better not to be at the very bottom rung of like just scraping by, like you said, and and getting a bit more in? And again, just clinically, I would say I see people's energy a lot better at higher people, you know, talking about brain fog and a lot of blood sugary things. I will say getting protein where it needs to be helps a lot with cognition, brain fog, energy levels. I had a I had a client, um, we just sort of wrapped up more recently, um, and she's doing way better, uh, especially systemically, because she was saying, you know, I'm having energy fluctuations throughout the day, and she had a high need because she was uh, lactating too. So she was like, um, you know, had a high protein need. Basically, the protein thing helped her energy more than anything else. She said the instant she started adding more protein into her diet, energy was really stable throughout the day. Um, She didn't feel foggy, those types of things. So I know a lot of that gets blamed on gut-related things, you know. Or carbs. Or carbs. Oh, I ate something with carbs and that's why I have brain fog. And maybe that's true. Like maybe the, the balance of having that many carbs in the context of not, not having enough protein made you feel bad. But yes, I think, right, exactly. So I, I think that, um, you know, that's something to, to pay attention to as well is just, how are you feeling throughout the day? Are any, is anything happening connected to, to meals? So postprandial reactions, uh, don't automatically think my gut microbiome is making me super sleepy and I feel really foggy and low energy. Or again, like carbs are evil or right. this food is evil. Yeah. Right. Think protein a little bit because I think it can make a big difference. Well, and it's interesting you say that it can help with energy and brain fog kind of purposes because I don't know if I super understood that initially, mm. but I will say, so my mom had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass in 2008 and I remember during her recovery, the couple of years following that surgery, she would go and have like appointments with the, the team at the hospital and they would guide her. And she was super compliant. She had a lot of complications, so she had to be really compliant, honestly. They said drink more water. She did. They said eat more protein. She did. And one of the things that they really stressed to that group of people was protein, protein, protein. And in the couple of years following her surgery, she really started noticing Mm. that if she had like an energy dip or a slump, she was like, oh, I need protein. And she would go have like a a hard boiled egg or some Mm. turkey or whatever. 
and she would get her energy back up. And yeah. now how much of that is placebo because they told her <laughs> that would happen versus how much was actually happening. But to this day, 15 years later, my mom kind of has this sense of when she needs to eat more protein and like when she hasn't had enough protein during the day. So mm -hmm. I do think that you're right about that. Yeah. Another, well, I, I think you're right about most things for the record. Wow. Let the what jury hear that. But also, um, so I was trying to brush up to try to contribute something to this episode because I knew, <laughs> I knew this would be um, obviously so we had more a, did we have we, Is the adaptogen episode going to be released? Because I feel like that one was yeah. like, tell me all your stuff. You know, it's <laughs> like, we like, you know, I have, we're, I've done, used adaptogens, but I don't have as much knowledge as, as you do. So we have a good balance. We teach each other a lot on this podcast, right. to be Great. clear. Um, but I did want to share this little blurb. So I've got one of my nutrition textbooks that I was brushing up on. They said, the liver is the primary site for the uptake of most amino acids following ingestion of a protein containing meal. The liver is thought to monitor the absorption, or sorry, to monitor the absorbed amino acids and adjust the rate of their metabolism, including catabolism or breakdown of amino acids and edible and oh my God, why can't I say this word? anabolism or use of the amino acids for synthesis according to the needs of the body. So this is one of many factors that's determining your metabolic activity. Mm, yeah. Are you revving it up or turning it down? Are you building new tissues or are you breaking them down? Right. And the amount of protein you take in is being monitored by the liver and kind of checked over and it, you're adjusting your metabolism based at least partially based on protein need. Now, how yeah. much that factors into like thyroid function or other parts of metabolism, I don't know. Um, mm. But I thought that was interesting that they said that. Yeah, for sure. And it, uh, it's interesting too, because I know we've talked about this and I, I mentioned it a second ago as well. Um. I know we've talked about this, how there seems to be a, a fairly decent number of people that we work with with gastritis. Um, and again, I think you could argue, um, you know, just gut lining in general. I know you're talking about glutamine in particular, but, you know, people that have a degree of gastritis or irritation are going to need more protein to heal that tissue. Um and it's just something to keep in mind. And I think you need overall calories as well. So I find people can get stuck in this perpetual cycle of nutrition being suboptimal, protein being a part of that combination, and then just having a little bit more of a chronic gastritis or chronic irritation that's not and really healing. And you don't want to eat a lot because everything right. you eat hurts your tummy and then it makes the nutritional inadequacies worse. Right. It's this vicious, vicious cycle that you can spiral into and it's hard to to get out. But I will say there's been some people that I've worked with with more chronic gastritis situations where intake seemed to be the primary factor um, in, in getting that to a better place, whether it was calories and protein, <laughs> both seemed to really help healing the tissue. Um but yeah, just a, a a little tidbit there. Like if you're struggling with anything like that, definitely making sure you're getting enough protein um, is important. Well, and again, I think anybody listening to this episode needs to at least be mindful of their protein, if mm -hmm. not make a blanket statement that everybody needs to increase right? because you're trying to heal stuff. So in right. the same way that there's like the baseline minimum need for sedentary people, and then there's an increased need for really physically active people who are breaking down and building new muscle. Similarly, if you're trying to build new epithelial cells, mm -hmm. new, you know, mucins and secretions, and you're trying right. to regulate hormones and regulate neurotransmitters and like do all this stuff, tone your vagus nerve, mm. every single one of those tissues is built from protein and uses protein in some way to signal. So again, whether it's a neurotransmitter or a cytokine right. or a hormone, those are all protein messenger molecules. So, you know, I think that anybody with a health condition that they're working on needs to increase protein. Um, right. Now, here's, here's a question. I think that we've talked a fair amount on this podcast before about diversifying plant foods. 
and the importance of having a diverse diet, particularly with plant foods and fibers and colors, and how that translates to better microbiota diversity mm. and stability and health. So if you eat a lot of different plants and fruits and vegetables and colors and polyphenols, you're going to have a very rich, stable, healthy microbiome. If you only eat a couple of vegetables ever, or if you're like my Uncle Paul, who only ever eats carrots, good luck, man, you're going to only feed the carrot eaters. Yeah. And you're going to have a very narrow, unstable, unhealthy microbiome. Oh, poor Paul. I know, poor Paul. Still to this day, I swear to God. <laughs> carrots. Um, I mean, he's other food, to be clear, but it's all like pizza and pasta and junk food. Right. Mashed potatoes. Um, but anyhow... I don't think it gets talked about as much with protein, though, like the need to diversify protein. Mm. And I think that this will gradually segue into like, the absorbability and the quality of protein and why mm. covering all of our bases with different protein sources is a useful strategy. But would you agree that if you only ever eat one thing, you're probably going to get a very specific amino acid profile, and you might be undershooting some and overshooting others? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think um, most of the time here in the U.S., we're eating a lot of muscly meat uh, sources. So, you know, we're not typically Steak, eating nose. chicken breast, right. pork right. chop, bacon. I mean, right. there's like five things that we eat. Right. And there, we don't really eat nose to tail. We're not eating liver typically. I, I think people used to, I had the most riveting conversation with my in-laws about all the crazy organ meat dishes that they ate growing up in Iran, like just hmm. the, the wildest stories, you know, every organ you could possibly imagine they had a dish Eyeballs. that they'd make. <laughs> Probably. I, I don't know if I, I asked specifically about that one, but we don't really eat nose to tail anymore, so it does affect um, a lot of the gly more glycine-rich sources. Um, so, like, collagen is a glycine-rich source, so you could potentially supplement a little bit of that into your diet or try to eat foods with more um, glycine, uh, which would be, like, bone broth. Uh, some of the organ meats are going to be more glycine-rich. Um, now, I have something interesting to throw out there in regards to glycine and, like, collagen type yeah. protein sources. Um, so one of the things I did prepping for this episode was I just popped in a quick Google search, Chris Masterjohn, because yeah. he's like pretty legit, right? Chris Masterjohn protein, and I wanted to see what would pop up. And he had a Chris Masterjohn light video about it was titled something about don't count your collagen peptides towards your total protein intake. Yeah. And basically, the shtick was, that dietary protein need is is more like what you need to build tissues. And it's more, I, I think he, he was saying that it was more focused on like essential amino acids, which are the amino acids mm -hmm. that you cannot make. Right. You have no way of making these things. You have to eat them or else right. <laughs> bad things happen. So he was saying like your kind of baseline protein need is more reflective of those amino acids that you need to take in because you cannot synthesize them. Right. And if you have collagen or collagen peptides, that's that's like gravy on top right. of that number, but it shouldn't count as that number. So for example, um, in the winter, I make myself like an herbal chai latte of sorts yeah. at home. And, you know, I do like the cinnamon and the nutmeg and, and the ginger and all the herbs and the tea. And I make a concentrate and then I just bust it out of the fridge or the freezer and I add some almond milk and I, I put in a scoop of the Vital Nutrients Collagen Creamer. And mm -hmm. I think I get maybe 10 grams of collagen protein in that. But theoretically, mm -hmm. chronometer is counting that towards yeah. my, my metric that I say I get about 86 grams per day. So really, actually, without that collagen creamer, I'm probably averaging closer to 80 and I probably yeah. shouldn't even count that according to what Chris was saying in his his video. Well, and he also talks about, too, um, that I think he usually recommends, like, a baseline level of glycine. 
I want to say it's like, maybe it's like 10 grams of collagen or something. There was some recommendation of what he recommends from, uh, probably be good. I, I, I didn't prep for that, but I know he recommends some level of glycine each day. Um, just as a way to balance out more of the methionine rich. He does talk about that balance, I know. So if you're looking for a more in-depth resource, he would be a good one. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, the diversity of the protein sources in general are going to help you with not only amino acids, but just diversity of nutrition in general. Because again, some... Some meat or fish or protein sources that you eat might have different nutrition in them. So if you're only eating chicken breast, you might not be getting as much iron like you would if you were incorporating steak or redder meats. Um, But if you're only eating steak, maybe you're not going to get like selenium, which you could get in what chicken thighs and like pork pork tenderloin or something like that. I think there's like even some of the B vitamins, like thiamines, I think a little bit higher in pork compared to other meats. Like there's just going to be differences. Fish is going to have omegas that you're not going to get from chicken or not nearly as much. It's very minimal omega-3s in chicken. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's just overall in general diversification of nutrition is really helpful. That doesn't mean that you have to, you can't have staples in your diet. You can't have, you know, some foods you eat on rotation. But I would say trying to, if you're just eating chicken breast, I would try to incorporate uh, some different sources in, but you don't have to go too crazy with it is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess make an effort, but don't obsess over it. Right. Is the theme. Right. Um, And it's funny you bring up chicken breast because I've had a couple of I don't even want to say friend, but like loose acquaintances that I've known. Like there was a girl I went to high school with who were Facebook friends, but we don't really keep in touch anymore. And then a a woman that I knew in grad school and we keep in touch, but we're not really close. And I've had a couple of Facebook friends get into figure posing and bodybuilding. Oh, yeah. It's like, that's a whole nother world, man. Right. But all three of them that I could think of that have done this, their go-to diet when they wanted to really like shred and drop any minuscule amount of fat off their body every single time. Right. Rice, chicken, and broccoli. Right. And if you think about it, they're lifting heavy ass weights and they're trying to get muscle hypertrophy. They're trying to grow the muscle and they're probably shooting themselves in the foot, not getting a right. more diverse array of protein sources. And to your point, you know, I kind of I kind of led us into this conversation. Like, do you agree? Knowing full well you would agree with me, and knowing right. full well that I had something to share too. So, I just had a patient more recently, um, and I was telling you this off camera, but she was getting a metric ton of protein every day. Mm. This is yeah. very atypical, like overshooting protein. I I maybe clinically I maybe see this like twice a year tops. <laughs> so yeah. it's not the norm in this population, but. She was one of the few people where we did some chronometer and I did a double take when I saw it. She was getting over 200 grams of protein every day. Oh my and gosh. it just, and it was basically from one thing. There was this particular type of fish that she was eating every single day for like multiple meals a day. And what was interesting was when I went into the chronometer dashboard and I was looking at the amino acid breakdown, she was getting a ton of protein, but she was really, really overdoing it on two amino acids in particular. And ironically, one of them can be converted to histamine, and one of them can be converted to hydrogen sulfide. And she had some loose suspicion or concern about both of those things, hydrogen sulfide and histamine intolerance. And it's like, okay, well, but, (laughs) but this astronomical amount of protein is going to contribute to that potentially versus if she had a more balanced plate. And what's interesting with her is that she specifically said she started gravitating to this diet that was super high in protein and low in carbs and low FODMAP because she thought that the carbs and the FODMAPs were what was actually hurting her tummy. Mm. And that as we started exploring this together, she realized, Oh no, I can actually eat these foods just fine. It was like the internet brainwashed her into thinking that carbs were bad and FODMAPs were bad if you have tummy problems. Um, But, you know, the the interesting thing about that, too, Mm. is that 
So she's overconsuming protein at the time, at least, and way undershooting fiber. I'm talking like 25% of her daily value of fiber, not a mucho. Hmm. Well, then there is research with regards to hydrogen sulfide, where basically there was one paper that really worded this well. And they said, my word's not theirs, you could eat tons of protein. And they said you could go upwards of 30% of your total calorie intake of, mm. in protein, as long as you're eating enough fiber to right. counteract that. But if you have a shit ton of protein, again, my word's not theirs, obviously, if you're having this astronomical amount of protein, without the fiber to balance it out, that is a recipe for creating hydrogen sulfide in the gut. But you know, when you go into the hydrogen sulfide Facebook groups and the IBS and the SIBO Facebook groups, when this topic does come up, I find that the conversation is virtually entirely, oh, you need to reduce protein or you right. need to reduce sulfur containing protein right. sources. But there's never a conversation of, oh, you could actually leave the protein alone and right. you could just boost up your fiber. Right. And then well, you're going to be fine. And I think it it truly depends on where that protein level is. But you also need to still have enough protein. Because like we said, it it affects every system. So if you all of a sudden just are malnourished because you're not getting enough protein, or again, you're, you're at a suboptimal level, that's not good and could affect function in so many ways and could prevent recovery of gut symptoms. And, you know, it's interesting because I do think in some of the research, there is evidence that higher, like super high protein diets over a certain threshold can affect digestion. I pulled some just to have um, diarrhea, dehydration, nausea, intestinal discomfort, like all these things can can happen if your level of protein is super high. And similarly, I had a, a client, I, I'm working with a client currently who was, I think, averaging about 220 grams of protein daily. And he, I think, was eating maybe slightly over 2,000 calories. We're working on gaining some weight with him. And um, he also had some elevated liver enzymes, which it does sort of stress out your liver as well to break down <laughs> that much protein. So there are definitely some ramifications if you go too high. Now, that's not our typical person at all. No. Like I said, um, once or twice a year, maybe for right. me, I see this. Right. But it is something if you're like carnivore or, you know, dabbling, which I wouldn't recommend anyway. But if you're dabbling in like lower carb, higher protein, you might want to assess sort of where things are falling and assess your fiber um, level to your point. Um, the other thing about too high protein, I've had some clients too, where maybe they weren't at the level, like my guy, I think it would be like 40% of his calories were from protein, which is just too high. Um, you know, the, if we wanted to go by that crazy, weird, like institute of medicine, 10 to 35%. So he was outside that. Um, now the other thing is some people I think could still be within that range, but might still benefit from decreasing. These would be people that are trying to gain weight. Um, because Sorry, decreasing or increasing um that need to decrease protein oh okay so because again if you're trying to gain weight and you're eating a high protein level it can affect your appetite so like if if someone for instance like let's just say i'm working with a woman that might be eating like 140 grams or 150 grams of protein something like that and we're trying to get calories up and she would still maybe fall in that. Like, I don't think it's necessarily hurting her outside of affecting her appetite. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. It's like are, you can make room in the diet, both calorically and appetite wise, if you right. bring down the protein a little bit in that kind of scenario. Right. So there have been a few cases like that where I've worked with people where they're not really high enough to where I think it's, it's, it's like hurting them or causing like liver issues or driving symptoms. But I think it's high enough to where it's affecting other goals. They can't get yeah. calories up, that sort of thing, because it's an appetite suppressant. Now, if your goal is to lose weight and you're doing it a healthy way, it could be a way to suppress appetite by going a little bit higher protein wise, not like outside that maybe 35%. Like I still think there's a, there's a, 
there's a tier of protein intake that you don't really want to get to. But you could still be on the higher side. Um, well, even honestly, I'm trying to think through. So again, we said that it, theoretically, if if my cal- caloric need is 2000 calories a day, math. Oh, by the way, we didn't elaborate on this. So protein, every gram of protein gives you four calories, right? Yes. So true. 100 grams of protein would be 400 calories 400 is 20% of 2000. So that's the rough math that was happening, like maybe 10 minutes ago or so we didn't elaborate on. But, um, uh, you know, thinking through, okay, so if 20% for me would be 100, 30% Mm -hmm. is 150. So 30%, at least to me personally, feels so high. I can't fathom eating that much protein. Yeah. I would, I would basically have to double what I'm doing right now. And to be clear, I eat eggs, I eat meat, I eat like Greek yogurt. I eat most that I do eat seafood. So I'm, I'm not bashful around protein. It's just that is a truly astronomical amount of protein, even to get up to 30%, which is the top end of that range that you gave. I think you're right. I think ballpark 20% of your calorie need is probably more correct. Right. Yeah. So yeah, again, just depends on your goals too. Like I said, if you want to push protein a little bit higher for like a performance or or a weight loss goal, I think that that's okay. You just would want to monitor how you're doing and how you're feeling with it. And again, still get a wide variety of other nutritional sources. Make sure you're getting some carbs and fiber and that sort of stuff in. Um, one thing I want to make sure we cover too is like digestibility of protein of protein sources and then how they're utilized in the body. Um, Cause I think this is really interesting more so from a, from a, anyone that's doing vegetarian diets or vegan diets, it comes more into play. Um, Can I interrupt you for a nanosecond? Yes. Preface this whole section. I was a vegetarian for 11 <laughs> years. We're not trying to be mean. Or come at you, and I get why some of you are vegetarians. I appreciate it, but also you need to hear this. Because right. I, people harped on me, protein, 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 iron, right. iron, iron. And I was like, ah, I'm fine, I'm fine. But right. I didn't know that. Like, I was assuming <laughs> because right. I thought that I was eating a healthy diet. Yeah. And now I look back and I realize, oh, if I had actually worked with a dietitian or done some actual tracking, like if I had put my money where my mouth right. was, and gotten the numbers, I guarantee I was undershooting protein, iron, B12, zinc, a whole bunch of stuff. But um, well, continuing. And I think, I think again, you could make it work. I think it'd be easier to make it much easier to make it work on a vegetarian versus all up vegan. I think it's, it's a much more of an uphill climb from a vegan. Now, you could probably still make it work. It just becomes way harder. Like it's like the, the level of um, hard you want to uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It, How much it, do you want to think about nutrition right. every day of your life? I exactly. think that's what it boils down to. It does. Like, that's a good way to put it. You can eat an omnivorous diet and not have to critically assess every single right. thing that goes in your mouth versus if you are doing, if you're vegan, you really have to be that much more mindful of getting these nutrients and you have to be on top of your game. Yeah, like much more um, vigilant about getting certain things in. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think if you look at the list of different things from a digestibility standpoint, like how are you, uh, what proteins are easiest to digest? Um, I pulled something up on my phone too. Um, there's going to be differences between, uh, between, um, meat or I should say animal sources and plant sources. Typically, um, Typically, the meat sources or the more animal-based sources are slightly more digestible than the the plant-based sources. So things like beans, peas. Now, some of these studies too, like they don't look at every single uh, every single um, plant-based Facet. source. But you know, this is showing like true digestibility of proteins. An egg, you know, ninety-seven percent of the protein gets digested. Uh, Milk, 96%. 
if I could interrupt you too. So I think the term that they could Google, which you just taught me like a week ago, is biological well, value. Well, that's right? is a that little, what you're talking about? That's yet? a little different. Okay. So there's the digestibility. Biological value is once it's absorbed, how is it used? Like, can okay. it be used and incorporated as protein, if that makes sense? Gotcha. Um, so this is like, how are you digesting it when it comes into the body? And then there's another thing called biological value, which is once it's in the body, how much of it gets used? Yeah, well, it so it's factoring in the digestion and absorption of that. Right. And then what happens after that? And like what happens at the cellular level. Right. So there's the digestibility and then there's the like what happens after you digest it. Is it used? Can you incorporate those amino acids easily into the body and use them? So there's two parts to the. Yeah. To this. Yeah. And here's what I had highlighted in my book like a dork here. So they said. Biological value is a measure of how much nitrogen is retained in the body for maintenance and growth rather than just absorbed. Yeah. So absorption is one thing, and that's super cool and necessary. But also, once it's absorbed, do the tissues incorporate that protein into the tissues and like do stuff and build stuff with it? Or right. does it just kind of float right. around and get excreted? Exactly. So there's like, this is sort of looking at the, the protein quality just looking at that specific factor again, like just because beans might be absorbed or might be less, slightly less digestible, doesn't mean that they can't provide so many other nutrients. So this is just looking at one aspect too. So try not to take it like, oh, beans are bad and eggs are good or something like that. You know, try not to take it too far. But you know, eggs seems like eggs and meat and fish proteins have slightly better digestibility than things like wheat, um, whole wheat, soy, rice. So it looks like, again, like egg, egg, meat, and fish, although peanut butter's high, peanut butter's 95%. That seems to be like the more digestible of the plant-based sources. Um, but eggs, milk, peanut butter, meat, and fish are between 97 to 94%. Um, and then wheat... And whole wheat is like 87 and 86. Soy and rice are 78 and 76. So like, again, there's a, from a digestibility of the proteins, you kind of get less and less as you go down that list uh, of the digestibility or how much is actually being absorbed, digested and absorbed into the body. Now, again, the biological value is once that stuff gets in, how is it incorporated into the body? Are you able to use it, like you said, to build things? Um, that I do have pulled up on my computer. Um, I one up too. And again, it, it's just, you can go ahead. I can't find mine, of course. Um, but you can kind of hash over it. It's sl- it's pretty similar where, you know, yeah. the more animal-based ba- stuff is at the top. And then you kind of work your way down to more uh, plant-based stuff towards the the bottom. Yeah, I I mean, at least according to this source, which is 2006, so it's a little bit older, but it's the first one that popped up on Google image search. Yeah, at least but you know, egg is 94% for biological value. That's the top of the list. And then you go all the way down, you know, you start you see like, milk, beef, fish, meat sort of stuff all falling in like the high 70s through kind of 80s sort of range. Mm -hmm. And then you get down to whole wheat flour, pea protein, potato, soy. And I mean, like, wheat flour is all the way down at 52% for biological Mm -hmm. value. Soy is the best out of the plant based sources at 73. But there's a pretty big difference in usability between something like eggs or milk versus soy. So if your absolute best protein source is soy, and it's kind of middle of the pack at best, um, you're going to be hard pressed to get everything you need. There's also this element of does the food have all of the correct amino acids, Mm. or all of the essential amino acids. And I know like when I was a vegetarian, this came up quite a bit, the idea of complementary protein. So you would combine legumes with a grain, and that way you get all of the essential amino acids from that combination. 
you have to be mindful and careful of that with vegetarian protein sources. Right. But you don't have to think about that with something like eggs or milk or beef or chicken or fish because animal-based protein sources almost always have all of the essential amino acids. Right. So again, it's like, how much do you want to think about nutrition for the rest of your life? Yeah. Yeah. And again, like some people would think that that was worth it, you know, that they, yeah, you know, and that's totally fine too. We're just kind of letting you know that there is a difference and you can choose to do with the information what you will. But I, I think, um, I think from my standpoint, uh, I, I agree. It, it, and it, it points out something too, like you, you might need a higher protein point as a vegan or vegetarian than even what, what we're recommending, which again becomes tricky too, because it's already hard enough to get to maybe what we're recommending on a vegan and vegetarian diet. So you might need to shoot even beyond that. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring that up and I don't know if that's an established thing. I don't think it is, but I think the RDA for protein should be higher for vegetarians and vegans. Um, Mm -hmm. I know when I was doing a deep dive on iron not that long ago, I did re-stumble upon something that the RDA for iron is, you know, set based on men versus women of a certain age group. But then they say to multiply that RDA by, I think it was 1.4, if you Mm. are a vegan or vegetarian. So I've seen that where I've had like a vegetarian client and you look at chronometer and they're getting 100 or 110% of their daily value of iron. And you're like, man, you're crushing it with iron. Way to go. But then their ferritin is low or they're anemic. And it's like, well, what gives? And of course, most people spiral into, oh, my God, I have malabsorption. It's the SIBO stealing my nutrients and making biofilms. Oh, my God. And it's like, oh, wait, no. (laughs) The, The usability of the iron in spinach or a plant based source is way lower than if you were to eat some seafood or a steak or a burger or whatever. Yeah. And we know that. And we're actually supposed to adjust the RDA if you mm. are a vegetarian or a vegan. And keep in mind, there's the baseline minimum to maintain health. If you're already iron deficient or you're already anemic, you're going to need even more than that. So, you yeah. know, I think similarly, looking at the biological value and the digestibility of plant-based protein, you might be sitting there sitting pretty thinking, oh, I'm crushing it. I'm getting 90 grams of protein because I've got, you know, 20 grams Mm -hmm. from my pea protein shake every day. I've got another 20 grams from tofu. I've got another X amount from lentils. But you don't always realize that you're not digesting and utilizing that protein as well as you would had it been an animal-based protein source. Yeah. And again, I I don't think that it's like, then now you just eat animal. Like there, there's definitely going to be a balance with this too, where some of your, and it's a good thing because again, you get different nutrition from the beans and different nutrition. It's not just about protein. You have to get other nutrients. So I think there should be a fine balance between your animal and plant sources. And if you are someone that, you know, is, vegetarian vegetarian in particular like you could totally balance out some animal sources and plant sources too with things like uh dairy and eggs um and kind of work things in that way i think again like uh like you said i think it gets way more tricky with vegan like the amount of thinking to to really figure out how to get that level of protein becomes very challenging um well, and but honestly, yeah. I I don't know if it's possible to fully work around a vegan diet, to be honest. Like, yeah. the temptation with a diet like that is, okay, so I'm deficient in protein. I'll just add, you know, a protein shake or some hemp seed or whatever it might be. And it's like, oh, I have, I'm also going to be B12 deficient. Well, I'll just take a B12 sublingual. Right. And then, oh, what about zinc? Oh, I guess I'll take a zinc supplement. And mm. What about iron? Oh, I'll just take an iron supplement. And I've seen people do this where they make this hodgepodge supplement schedule just to kind of fill the gaps of their vegan diet. And I'll I'll be honest, I actually, in probably in the last year, year and a half, I 
just implemented a policy that my assistant knows, and that's that I don't work with vegans anymore. Yeah. And I had I actually had somebody kind of squeak through and got to the discovery call stage with me because he was kind of ambiguous. He he said whole food plant-based on the question right. of what is your diet like. So he squeaked by and I finally asked him, you know, like, what does that mean to you? Are you a vegetarian? Are you a vegan? Are you just like heavily plant forward, but you still eat some protein? And when he said he was a vegan and we were talking about why we were not going to work together unless he was willing to change that. Uh, I was just really honest with him. And I said, honestly, I've worked with a handful of vegans and I was not able to help even one of them. Mm. Yeah. Now the question is, like, do I suck that much clinically? (laughs) Where I get, but here's the thing. Here's the rub. I get really good results with literally everybody else. Yeah. So... Well, the difference to me, I just I feel like there's something about the vegan diet that we're not gonna nail down. And it's really hard to get people back to health eating that way. Now, maintaining health, if you already feel fine, and and you're doing okay, that might be one thing. But right. if you are sick, or you have symptoms that you're trying to heal, I, I'm just of the opinion now that you're going to be really hard pressed to accomplish that and actually heal your body on a vegan diet. Right. Um, and like, I don't want to waste people's money. If I'm not going to be able to help them, there's no point right. in us like starting this journey working together. If I know darn well, that that's going to be a hindrance. Yeah. And I think again, like, like you said, we're not trying to be meanies and be like, Oh, the vegan diet. No, no, no. no. It's, it's just, there's, it creates so many barriers nutritionally that are really hard to, to surmount. And I, I do not work with vegans at this point either. I, I think again, I haven't had success with vegans either. And and I will say I've had some other dietetic friends who work in sort of the gut functional space who uh, don't worth work with vegans too. And it feels like very mean too, to be like, no, it, we're not it feels mean. And I, like, I hate, I hate doing it. But like you said, I don't want to waste someone's time or money. If, if I feel like and hope, like right. every time you start working with a new person, you get excited. You think this is the one they're going to be the one to help me. I'm finally going to get through this. Right. And it's, you know, it's easy to get burnt out on that cycle of like getting your hopes up and then being crushed and then getting your hopes up and being crushed. Right. Um, you know, I think I'll I'll wrap this up because I know you have to go momentarily. Uh, Michael Pollan has a good bit in one of his many lectures on YouTube. And he's basically talking about how humans are egotistical enough that we think we can extract out the good parts of a food. So we could have a carrot and we could suck out the beta carotene and we could suck out the fiber from the carrot and we could suck out the whatever else from the carrot. And you know, theoretically, we could suck out all of the things that we think are good from that food. Right. But there's still going to be something left over that we don't fully understand. And those individual parts do not equal the whole thing. And the way that he phrased it in his lecture was, we don't know what's going on deep inside the soul of a carrot. And I think that the same thing could be said of a steak or a slab of fish or some oysters or eggs. You know, you feel like you can band-aid around individual nutrients, but I feel like there's some synergy in the whole food that we just can't band-aid around while letting people maintain their vegan diet. So not to end this episode on kind of a bummer note for the vegans listening to us, but just kind of keep that in mind in your healing journey. And again, if you're one of those people who feels like they've done everything, they've tried all the things... There's, you know, if you feel like you're scrambling and you're stuck and you don't know why you're not feeling better, maybe take a better look at protein and start evaluating your protein sources and your protein quantity. And you might just be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, 100% agree. And I just thought too of a, of a client um, recently who was low in iron and eating not, not vegetarian or not vegan, but again, more vegetarian based started adding some meat in feeling way better. And I think it was more the meat than the iron. Cause he was iron deficient. Um, 
and the 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 iron's been slowly going up, but I think like he noticed instantaneous change upon adding a little bit more more meat. And it's not a crazy amount too. Like I don't think you need to eat a crazy amount. Of We're meat. recommending every single one of you do the carnivore diet immediately. <laughs> no, no. And never turn back. No, like so but yeah, I mean again, like it, it could be an option, like you said. I think it keep it try to keep it on the table and try not to um uh, you know, be super closed off to the idea of maybe adding a little bit of something in if you feel like you are stuck. Yeah. And here's a quick resource too before we actually wrap this up. So Denise Minger is a great resource. Um, I don't know if she's super active these days, but I still refer back to her website. It's just denisemanger.com. I always forget that though. And I type in her old URL, Mm rawfoodsos.com and it redirects, thank God. Um, But she has a tab on her website that says for vegans. And I send this to vegan and vegetarian patients pretty regularly. And it starts out by saying, I promise this page isn't scary or mean. Yeah. And she starts off by saying, despite rumors to the contrary, I'm actually not a rabid, foaming-at-the-mouth, steak-fueled mission to unveganize the world. My own diet is mostly plants, and I benefit in no way, financially or otherwise, if you decide to put an egg in your mouth instead of a lump of texturized vegetable protein. My sole goal with this blog is to squash out bad science and give folks access to accurate information with about diet. What you decide to do with the stuff, I say here, is completely up to you. But she has like 12 or 13 bullet points and and ideas for how you could get these nutrients while still having a mostly plant-based diet. Mm. And she talks about the value of some of these nutrients. Um, so that's just that's a really good resource. And I think that she's pretty gosh darn smart. She's very so, funny too, as you can hear. She's, she's a yeah. great resource. I'm glad yeah, you brought her up. And she gets it because she was not only a, a vegan, but she was a raw food vegan yeah. for, I think, quite a while prior to kind of pivoting. Um, but yeah, so that's that's another resource for people, too, if you want to learn more. But ending thoughts, most of you probably need to increase protein. And please try to get some of that protein from animal sources. Please and thank you. And I think that's about a wrap. Do you have any final words? No, of I don't think I do. I don't think I do. I think you, you did a good job. Like, you looked like you had a crumb of wisdom to offer. So oh, I thought man. I, would, I don't I think I do. I think ask. I'm out of I'm out of wisdom. Okay. Well, at least that's on a, this topic. That's as good a reason to wrap up the episode as any people. You know the drill. We'll see you right back here next week for another episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Until then, toodaloo.